Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Expanding Eyes podcast, in which we have been moving through Milton's Paradise Lost for some weeks and have arrived about the middle of book four. We have not been moving at a fast clip through it because there is so much to talk about. I can perhaps reassure you if you're wondering whether there's ever going to be any action ever again in this poem, that yes, before in fact we get out of book four, there will be a little bit of standard heroic style epic action, clashes of warriors. But I caution that this is not an action epic. It is in many ways a kind of anti-action epic. Milton is redefining what a heroic act is. And as we'll see, it will take a good while for this to emerge. But we will see that most of the traditional warrior fight scene stuff going all the way back to the Iliad, Milton subtly subverts and even at points parodies. Yes, there may be time for action. After all, Milton took part in the English Civil War, which was indeed a clash of armies, and he is not some pacifist. Nonetheless, the real heroic act to Milton is always an inward act of reason and free decision. Reason is but choosing, that line that occurs in a slightly varied form in both his prose pamphlet, Areopagitica, and in Paradise Lost, represents the essence of what Milton has to say as a poet, that the real act is not a sword fight. It is an inward decision and may fall upon us all. So there isn't a lot of action, though I assure you we are not simply going to stay grounded. There is the war in heaven, there is the creation, there is the fall itself. But the point is not the action, it is largely a thematic epic talking about what is the meaning of all of this? Why did all of this take place? In book four, we have been following Satan, who has broken into the Garden of Eden and is spying his way through it until he comes across the protagonists of the poem, Adam and Eve, and we get our first look at them. And Milton chooses that point to inaugurate the discussion of male-female relations and what we would call male dominance and patriarchy. A difficult discussion, and yet Milton is trapped into having it. Here in the very first conversation that we overhear, so to speak, of Adam and Eve between each other, we get first of all, some of the baldest, least sympathetic sounding lines 
talking about female inferiority, male superiority, therefore the male should be dominant over the woman. These lines are there and there's no excusing them by modern standards, but they do not represent the poem's entire position whatsoever. They are there to state the letter of the law. And yes, Milton is, reason is but choosing, and Milton chooses to accede to the letter of the law, which traditionally was male dominance. Nonetheless, as we'll see, and as we did see already last time to some extent, Milton stresses as much as he can here as in other aspects, other themes in the poem, the spirit of the law over the letter. Some of the notorious lines saying that Eve is inferior and Adam superior are stating the letter of the law as it was impossible to get out of, not only if you're writing a Christian poem trying to justify the ways of God to men, but having chosen as a source text the story of the fall, because that story was the root of the doctrine of male dominance in the biblical tradition. That is, okay, here's the story in the first several chapters of Genesis of what happens when a woman gets independent-minded, goes off on her own, refuses to obey first her husband and second God himself, and causes the fall of the human race. That's why women have to be controlled. That was the ideology, and that was accepted in a whole line of theology and doctrine, going at least as back as far as St. Augustine, but really back further than that into Paul in the New Testament. Paul has several passages in which he explicitly subordinates the woman to the man, the wife to the husband. What to do with that? Augustine and then a later line of theology simply reinforcing what Paul had said. If you want a brilliant discussion of that whole wrong-headed tradition, I very much recommend the book by the great biblical scholar Elaine Pagels called Adam, Eve, and the Serpent. Women get blamed for the fall, therefore it's used to justify male domination. I especially recommend it because like every book she writes, and I recommend all of Elaine Pagels' books on religion to you, it is beautifully excessively, warmly written for real readers and not just scholars. But this was the tradition, and Milton was stuck with it. As I say, all he can do is try to counterbalance according to the spirit of the law. I looked ahead a little bit last time and said that when push comes to shove, when 
Eve does get a mind to go off on her own. Later in the poem, Adam argues strongly against it. They have been told by no less than an angel not to separate. She wants to do it anyway. He argues himself blue in the face. He's totally exasperated and finally says, okay, it's your decision. I don't agree with it. I think it's wrong. I think it's dangerous. But he does not try to coerce or commend her. I think that represents something closer to Milton's ideal of what a marriage is really like. That it is a relationship of equals, whatever the ideology may say. And if you want an equal partner, you don't throw your weight around and coerce and put your foot down and all of that. And what did marriage really mean to Milton? I ended last time with the beautiful inset lyric poem. You have to be observant and see that it's even there. Somewhere around line 637, it begins, Eve speaks to Adam a beautiful inset lyric poem that starts with the line, with thee conversing, I forget all time. Conversing, the word verse means turn. Conversation means turning back and forth. In other words, it means an interchange of equals, and that is what he is saying. That is the essence of marriage to Milton. He is not naive enough to know. He learned from bitter experience in his troubled first marriage that it doesn't always live up to that. And that prompted him to write not one but four tracts arguing for the liberty of divorce when it was necessary, when the marriage failed to live up to that ideal. But clearly that did not invalidate the ideal to him. He is not free by modern standards of patriarchy and sexism, but there is much more than that. There is a struggle there, and it is a struggle that continues to be our struggle. And we move on from that to the other aspect of their marriage, which is the physical aspect, where, curiously enough, perhaps, Milton is actually bolder than he is about the social relations. <clears throat> He affirms human sexuality, this time in the teeth of another entire tradition of denouncing sexuality of sexual desire as a necessary evil. The classic text on this is St. Augustine, who regarded human sexual desire as an evil that came into existence because of the fall, necessary, or the race could not reproduce, and yet something that is not good in itself. Milton vociferously disagrees. 
I read this passage last time, but let me reread it because we need to see its effect on Satan. That is the next item of plot. Nor turned, I ween, this is around line 741 in book four, nor turned, I ween, Adam from his fair spouse. They are going to bed at night. Nor Eve, the rites mysterious of connubial love refused. Whatever hypocrites austerely talk of purity and place and innocence, defaming as impure what God declares pure and commands to some, leaves free to all. Our maker bids increase, who bids abstain, but our destroyer, foe to God and man. Hail, wedded love, mysterious law. And goes on to say, by thee adulterous lust was driven from men among the bestial herds to reign. We're not licensing lust here, though I am absolutely sure that some of Milton's readers felt that that's what he was doing. You're just saying that it's okay to lust. And I'm not, I don't think, exaggerating this. I grew up before the Second Vatican Council modernized some of the Catholic Church teachings on this. And it was stressed that sexual pleasure, even in marriage, was lust unless it was strictly for the purpose of reproduction and nothing more. Vatican II changed that. It is for reproduction and expression of love between a monogamously married couple. But the tradition was still there within my lifetime. Satan, believe it or not, watches. Another bold move on Milton's part is a little bit discreet about it, but not much. Satan's a voyeur. He looks on and it drives him crazy with lust looking on. It is, I have to laugh every time. And I think I've said before that unlike Dante in my way of reading them, I think Milton had a sharp, satiric sense of humor. And watching Adam and Eve, this is around line 505. From the point of view of Satan, Adam and Eve, physically loving, sight hateful, sight tormenting, thus to see these two imparadised in one another's arms, the happier Eden. That is the most luminous line. It comes out of the mouth of Satan, and yet, in paradise, in one another's arms, the happier Eden, as always in Milton, the internal paradise, the paradise of feeling between two people, that's the real paradise. And even Satan understands that sight hateful that these shall enjoy their fill bliss on bliss while i to hell am thrust where neither joy nor love but fierce desire among our other torments not the least still unfulfilled with pain of longing pines again 
I think it's satiric and funny. Among our other torments, not the least, is unrelieved, eternally unrelieved lust, unrelieved desire for all eternity. And it drives him crazy. Enough that he drops his disguise, and Uriel, the sharp-eyed angel of the sun, who had been deceived previously when Satan came by looking for the Garden of Eden because Uriel was not used to deception. But once Satan drops the mask, even though he is an entire world away, it, is, it does not go unnoticed by Uriel. The angel of the sun, and I should add in, in passing, one of the four angels who get named in the biblical tradition, and Milton employs all four of them. There is Uriel, angel of the sun. There is Gabriel, who is a sort of warrior angel that we're going to meet in a moment. And later, Michael, who is another warrior angel and in fact leader of the heavenly hosts, contrasted with Raphael, who in book five very soon will come down in a friendly way to Adam and Eve. These four are the angels that in the biblical tradition were given names and Milton does characterize all four of them and they play some crucial roles in the poem. Uriel goes to Gabriel, who with a cohort of warrior angels is standing as sentry and alerts them, ahem, intruder in the garden. And off they go in the end of book four. And they discover, sure enough, there is Satan in a nifty, it would make a good film special effect. Him there they found around 9800, squat like a toad, close at the ear of Eve. Squat like a toad, basically a toad whispering in her ear. What is he doing? He is trying to affect through the whispering, through what we would call a subliminal suggestion while she's unconscious. He's trying to reach what we would call her unconscious and disturb her faculties and plant notions through a dream that will later replay almost verbatim in the actual scene of the temptation and fall. We begin here, we have talked of human sexuality. We begin a whole series of references by Milton to the theme of the relationship in Christianity, in human life, between the body and the mind or consciousness, between matter and spirit, two aspects of life and reality that seem antithetical and have always been regarded as a problem. The so-called mind-body problem has been a perennial 
bugaboo in the history of philosophy and the relationship of matter to spirit in the history of religion. Much of the reference in the coming books is about this theme. We get increasingly references to the body and its relationship to mind and spirit. There is a lot at stake here. It will emerge gradually as we move through the various parts of the poem. But that split, that potential dualism, has caused much of the grief of human life and is the source of human alienation. I have just gotten done actually completing and ready to post a newsletter, Expanding Eyes newsletter for July 15th, 2022. And it is about this subject, the split. Here, we get a series of references in large ways and small to that theme of the relationship of mind and body, of spirit and matter. Here, in a more minor way, you can look in footnotes or you can look in some of the handbooks. Two that I have recommended are The Elizabethan World Picture by E.M.W. Tilliard, very old, almost a century old, but still perfectly valid as a handbook of traditional medieval and Renaissance lore, or a little more modern but equally good C.S. Lewis, The Discarded Image. Both highly useful and readable books about the kind of background lore on this and many another subject that you really need in order to read medieval and Renaissance poetry all the way up to the 18th century and the beginning of the modern period. Here, there was a whole theory that you can look up in those books if you want about what's going on. They knew, they didn't have modern science, but they knew that somehow or other, the body and the mind have to not only interact, but in a strange way, one has to turn into the other we eat food, it goes into the digestive system and is metabolized, as we would say, and that turns to energy, which in turn somehow or other, and it's not like we've exactly solved the or other ourselves, somehow or other, it turns to consciousness, to us. Started as food, ends with us. How does that happen? They had a theory, which you can look up in passing. I, I note it simply because, one, it's kind of nifty. I always think these things of lore are. And two, it shows their thinking along the lines of the process between consciousness and the body, where the food began to be metabolized into what they called the natural spirits, which rose through three sets of spirits, which are physical to begin with, but move increasingly towards spirits in the disembodied sense. Line 804, what is Satan trying to do? He might taint the animal spirits so that they might rise up from the physical level directly, sort of short circuit the natural metabolic process 
and give some sort of a strange shock to her brain and give her, as we will see in book five, when she wakes up and recounts what happened to her overnight, he has disturbed her system and left a dream of temptation behind. Well, the angelic sentry accosts Satan, who startles and drops his disguise and stands up. And there is an angelic standoff. It's Satan against the whole squad of angels. And he tries to brazen it out. And he is good at throwing his weight around, around line 985. Satan alarmed, collecting all his might, dilated stood like Tenerife or Atlas unremoved. His stature reached the sky, and on his crest sat horror plumed. In other words, we get a sort of titanic version of warrior heroics and the blustering of the warrior. But now is not the time for a fight scene. God has decided this. And in the following lines, somewhere around line 1000, God hangs in the sky the golden scales, the golden balances that weigh two different causes, two different decisions. This is an image that goes all the way back to two different episodes in the Iliad, was stolen by Virgil in the Aeneid, and is still growing, going strong here. The balances are weighed against Satan. He sees the inevitable, and off he goes. He runs away. End of book four. So aborted action. We'll get the real thing in book six, but here it's aborted. And that takes us into book five. And... Adam and Eve have slept the night, and it's dawn in the opening of book five. And Adam wakes up and looks over at his wife and is astonished and disturbed to see that she looks, she's still asleep, but she's all upset looking. His wonder was to find unwakened Eve with tresses discomposed and glowing cheek as through unquiet rest. And she wakes up, and sure enough, she is quite upset. And she recounts to Adam, Such night till this I never passed, have dreamed. And tells her dream. Dreams play a role in Paradise Lost, and they are meaningful. The dream, as she does not understand, is not her dream, it's been planted. This is what Satan has managed to do by disturbing her on a deep level. And she is not guilty of it, though she is disturbed to think that this came, as she thinks, out of her mind. What was it? A dream of the forbidden tree. 
there she is, and beside it stood one shaped and winged like one of those from heaven. Standing beside it is a shape that seems like an angel from heaven. But what that angel is counseling is to eat the fruit that has been forbidden by heaven. And making arguments that later Satan will make in person, so to speak, if you can say in person about a talking snake. And the appeal is always to Eve's, what we would call in modern philosophy, will to power. You need to be powerful. You are subordinate, first to your husband, then to all that crew upstairs, including God himself. Taste this, and be henceforth among the gods, thyself a goddess, not to earth confined, but sometimes in the air as we sometimes ascend to heaven. You are subordinate, and your subordination is showed by the very physical position you are underneath in this lower realm. If you were a goddess, you could ascend to heaven yourself, the higher realm. And he keeps counseling this and then gets her to eat within the dream. And the result of that seems to validate they fly. They leave the earth and fly. This is a dream of flying. I could add in passing that in the psychoanalytic tradition, as usual, and Freud quite admitted this, so much of the insight of depth psychology was to rediscover things that, as Freud said, the poets always knew. Dreams of flying often have a sexual component. And believe it or not, this is a sometimes quoted detail. The Greek word for the top of the ladder is climax. The top of the ladder is climax in Greek. And dreams of flight are of an orgasmic sexual sort of nature. There was a bestseller by a writer named Erica Jong in the 1970s called Fear of Flying, and there was a double meaning in that title. Here, I think there's an undercurrent of that too. We speak of the seduction of Eve, and again, the older writers were not unsophisticated. They understood some of these unconscious symbols. Flying, it's the thrill that is partly sexual, but it's partly the thrill of power. The two are wound around each other in the human unconscious, except that all of a sudden my guide was gone and I fall and I wake up. Extraordinary dream. And of course, she's very upset by it. So cheered he his fair spouse, and she was cheered. Adam tries to cheer her up and say, 
It's okay, it was just a dream. But silently, a gentle tear let fall from either eye and wiped them with her hair. It's very disturbing to her. Understandably so, though it's not her fault. God has seen all of this, and God responds as book five moves onward by summoning another of those named angels, Raphael. Raphael is distinguished as being the good cop angel, as distinct from the sterner angels, Gabriel and Michael. He is called in line 221 the sociable spirit. He's at a later point called the affable archangel and is basically the, arch, the angel who invites alliteration in his epithets. But God calls on him for a very deliberate reason. Why Raphael? Because he is social and affable. And God tells Raphael, gives him the commission to go down and half this day as friend with friend, line 228, converse, that key word, with Adam. As friend with friend, as equals, go talk to him. Now, he spoils it because God the Father has the duty, so to speak, it's his symbolic duty to represent the letter of the law and therefore justice and therefore, ne if necessary, wrath and discipline. So he kind of makes it sound nice, go converse as a friend, and then the narrator deflates it by saying, so spake the eternal father and fulfilled all justice. In other words, well, see, we warned him. Two, two things getting in each other's way there. But chooses Raphael because Raphael is this warmly sociable, personable spirit. Go down and give them the full background on this, warn them. And Raphael does go down. We get a description of him, clearly contrasted with the description of Satan, coming down. We note that in closer to the biblical tradition of angels, he has six wings. This, if you look at medieval art, you will see renditions of this out of the Bible rather than the two of more modern popular tradition. And he is a magnificent. Uh, Adam and Eve see him coming from a distance. And Adam says, what glorious shape comes this way moving, seems another morn risen on mid-noon. Beautiful line. There's an angel coming to lunch. Oh dear, we've never had an angel to lunch before. We don't know the proper protocols and manners here. Uh, there's going to be more rather subtle Miltonic humor about that, a comedy of manners sort of thing as we will go on with. For right now, we'll end by saying, well, at least one thing is simple. Adam and Eve don't have to worry about how to dress. It's come as you are around here, and their natural, simple state will do just fine.
and they have lunch with an angel in the garden and a long conversation that goes on for several books. And we will take up from that affable, sociable point next time.